Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Hey, welcome back to the Cribsiders podcast. We are here with a very special episode and a short apology to start. Uh, oops, we messed up. Uh-oh, Justin. Tell me what happened. Here's what happened. So we were so excited about this Fluids episode. It's a great episode. It's a wonderful episode, Dr. Michelle Stark. And while we were editing, we got a little overzealous and completely left out one of the best parts of the conversation, the components of maintenance fluids talk. Oof. Yes, that is actually one of the most key parts of the episode. Um, you know, we talk about fluid boluses, we talk about maintenance fluids, but maintenance fluids really is half the episode. Um, Dr. Starr goes into a deep dive in the AEP guidelines. She talks about the components of the fluids, and we should really bring that back in for the listeners, Justin. Totally. Uh, it was a cool part of the episode. We're going to bring it back. If you listen to the episode now, it's back. But if you listen to the episode before February 12th, uh, then this part is going to be missing. But so great news, you're going to have about 15 minutes of fresh new content to listen to when we finish our apologies. So get excited. Am I right, Sam? I'm absolutely excited. I love fluids. Can't get enough. Let's go. Uh, let's do it. Before we get into it, again, apologies. Swiss cheese model, weird hole alignment. Sorry. We're working on it to make sure it doesn't happen again. We are a bit of a grassroots organization. It's no excuse, but you know, we're still recording from basements and home offices where there's crying babies in the background. We're going to have something slip. And uh, as we've always said, you know, we're all about normalizing failure and so this was this was actually intentional sam you know we're doing this to model this type of behavior you exactly know? it's part of our educational uh component here at the it's science. part of our stick it's part of our stick yeah um, exactly but we're grateful to the the crib ciders nation family and community that listens we're appreciative of you we want to keep making great high quality content practice change and knowledge for you if you ever do have feedback questions comments anything please do feel free to reach out to us our email is the cribsiders at gmail.com we're on social media you can check out the website, www.thecribsetters.com. But we'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to know that you're out there and that we're not just, you know, yelling into the void. So if you have any comments, thoughts, feedback, always please feel free to reach out. This is for you. This is the family. This is the community. Uh, uh, we're all going through medicine together. Awesome. So we'll leave it at that. And without further ado, let's jump to our discussion on the components of maintenance fluids. We're going to talk about sodium. We'll talk about potassium. We'll talk about glucose and do it with the one and only Dr. Michelle Starr. Let's do it. Nephrologists love to talk about sodium, and I think with maintenance fluids, this is what's something that comes up a lot, in part because I even remember as a resident at one point being taught that for maintenance fluids, we should use um, hypotonic fluids, like half-normal saline, to avoid the risk of hypernatremia from the elevated sodium concentration, as you mentioned, in normal saline. Um and now it seems like there's some concerns with using hypotonic fluids causing hyponatremia. Can you talk about a little bit when we're choosing maintenance fluids, what is it based on sodium? What kind of goes into this decision and how does how does sodium play a role in that? Oh, this is like one of my favorite questions and my favorite things to talk about. So it's challenging. And I think oftentimes this is one of the first orders that an intern or a resident writes. And, you know, your, your senior says to you, your attending says to you, just throw them on fluids, throw them on maintenance fluids and tuck them in. And then you're like, well, which fluids? 
which rates do I add potassium? Do I not add potassium? Do they need glucose? Do they not need glucose? What rate do I do? And there's about a thousand different decisions that go into the choice of actual maintenance fluids. Um, and it can be somewhat paralyzing. So let's start with sodium content and the kind of composition of fluids, and then we can talk about the other components as well. So I'll point out that the um, clinical practice guidelines, um, which are endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, recommend choosing normal saline. They make that choice um, for patients. The inclusion ranges are one month to 18 years for ongoing maintenance therapy. And they do that to avoid hyponatremia. It's a pretty strong, pretty sweeping recommendation based on literature that I think is decent, but not strong enough to make that sweeping of a statement. And so my approach actually is to be a little bit more individualized um, in terms of what I think a patient's risk for hyponatremia or really their risk of dysnatremia, so either hyponatremia or hypernatremia, and then decide a maintenance starting therapy. And then my kind of decision to change things is based on labs and follow-up studies as we go. So for example, in the patient that we just admitted, I would say that this is a patient who is at mild to moderate risk of developing dysnatremias, right? We don't know their electrolytes coming in because we said, well, we'll wait and see, but they're at what I would call kind of mild to moderate risk. Now, why are patients at risk of hyponatremia when they come in? So this is when we get to talk about ADH and people start sweating a little bit, but really it's totally fine. So ADH is a fight or flight response. So if you just think about ADH and vasopressin, which are the same thing, as kind of a fight-or-flight response, it tells you what it does. Because when you are critically ill, running from someone, you don't want to have to stop and pee. And so what ADH does is it basically improves your concentration. It improves your reabsorption of water. And in the correct clinical setting, depending on what fluids you're getting, it can kind of assist with the development of hyponatremia. And so that's the reason the guidelines are written and developed the way they are, is to decrease the risk of patients developing clinically significant hyponatremia. And can I ask, just to clarify, the guideline recommends normal saline as opposed to half normal saline because of that isotonicity to avoid hyponatremia, which is at higher risk with the ADH and vasopressin secretion when someone's sick or in a hospital setting. Right. right. And yeah, and the, what the authors of the guideline would say is that basically children admitted to the hospital are at very high risk of, I wouldn't even call it SIADH because it's kind of appropriate release of ADH, right? It's a physiologic stress response to pain vomiting, respiratory illness, these things all increase your ADH secretion. So these patients do all truly have risks of excess ADH and hyponatremia, but there is also risks of giving them normal saline. And so, you know, a lot of these studies that the clinical practice guideline are based on looked at hyponatremia, but they didn't look at the kind of corollaries on the other side. So they didn't look at hypernatremia. They didn't look at risk of hypertension. And then they really didn't look at some of these other kind of indicators that the adult studies are starting to look at. So kidney dysfunction, acidosis, and some of the other kind of markers like length of stay and things like that. And so while there are risks on both sides, I, as kind of my approach, will usually start patients on half normal saline as their maintenance therapy as long as I have a good plan to monitor and to follow up how they're doing. And I... 
coming as a MedPeds person, feel very Team LR. And when we talk about the decreased risk of acidosis, we talk about you know the decreased uh, possible clinical benefits. We talk about how it actually has a less concentrated sodium. Why is that not kind of the go-to for nephrologists, and or is that the future? Like, why why aren't we all Team LR? I think some of it is just training and the way that people, you know, people do things that they're familiar with. Um, and so I think that there, are, especially in the setting of clinical practice guidelines that say this is the way that we should approach fluid therapy, I think that there is just a lot of kind of momentum on team abnormal saline. Mm. Um, I tend to use D5LR or D5 half normal saline um, or plasma light as my ongoing kind of maintenance fluid for my patients. And the caveat of that is a lot of my patients have abnormal renal function. Um, but even when I'm helping take care of a patient with a non-renal issue, those are my go-to fluid choices for some of those same reasons. Now you just added a whole nother thing into the mix. You said D5. Now we're, we're, we're making things a little more complex now. What, what's going on with the D, with the dextrose? Yeah. So we've talked a little bit um, about hyponatremia, hypernatremia, dysnatremia risks. We can talk a little bit about glucose and then we should make sure we talk about potassium as well because that's really one of those things that I think throws a little bit of a wrench in everything as well. Uh, before we jump on to um, to glucose, which is absolutely a thing we need to talk about, I just had a few more questions about the maintenance fluid itself. I was just thinking, um, we just started talking about how good LR is to bolus, and we're doing maintenance fluids, and we're trying to decide what to do. Um, you know, why do you think also that we do a lot of maintenance, not just intermittent bolusing? So, you know, it's a really good question, and in some ways, it might be more physiologic, right? Like we don't constantly have fluid dripping into our mouths at all times, right? We tend to um, we tend to consume fluids enterally in more of a bolus sort of situation. It honestly probably would be more physiologic. I think when patients are in the hospital, it's probably just a little bit more practical and doesn't require repeated assessments. It does allow me to talk about one of my big nephrology pet peeves, which is multiples of maintenance. I have strong feelings here, and I really think that patients should never be prescribed multiples of maintenance because either a patient is euvolemic or they're not. If you don't have a patient euvolemic, you bolus them until they're euvolemic and then you give them maintenance. Multiples of maintenance fluids, just a way to get yourself in trouble and get a patient fluid overloaded. One maybe quick thing too, to your point, Sam, that I ha I remember having calls as an attending where the patient wanted to move around or go to somewhere and when they have the IV pole, it's kind of like a liquid handcuffs and there's like, can we give them off? Can we get them off maintenance fluids for an hour? And I think the fear is like, no, then he'll get dehydrated. And um, to your point of, you know, bolusing to euvolemia, it's okay to, to miss a couple hours of maintenance fluids if it means, you know, getting out of bed. And I think the other thing that I often um, encourage my residents to think about is whether a patient truly needs IV fluids. So remember, we all go to sleep and we don't get IV fluids overnight and we are all okay when we wake up in the morning. Um, and so often when we have a patient who's NPO for a procedure overnight in the hospital, the question isn't what fluids should we be running. It's, the question is, do they need IV fluids overnight? And then I actually wanted to circle back around just to one thing, make sure I understood this right. So um, the kids who are at risk for hyponatremia. Um, so we talked about ADH being on, and when ADH is on, that's obviously going to bring in water and uh, and drive your uh, your total sodium down. 
um, when I think of that, I always think of hypotensive patients. Um, once they're euvolemic and we bolus them, how long do you think it takes them to essentially turn that extra round of ADH off? Or is the fact that they're so inflamed with whatever their, their illness is, is that enough to uh, to keep it going? It's a really good question. So we can see this, you know, it it, it depends, I think, on the severity of their illness. Um, so in critically ill, so ICU patients, that kind of perturbed ADH state can last quite a period of time, um, especially while they're kind of having these ongoing stressors, so mechanical ventilation, respiratory distress, all of those pieces can continue for a period of time. But in a kind of less critically ill patient, their ADH response is probably starting to slow down just about the time you're starting to think about, do I need this patient still need to be on IV fluids? And so going back to the, you know, determining the maintenance fluids, there's all these great additives on the the fluid salad bar of, of glucose, potassium, uh, phosphate. Let's go back. You had mentioned D5 or D10. Uh, what's the story with glucose and IV fluids? When should we be adding glucose? Should we be adding glucose? How much? Let's, let's talk about glucose and water. Yeah. So, you know, I think in some ways nephrologists are sometimes IV fluid sommeliers, right? Like we're trying to make decisions about like, you know, what the right combination of things are. Um, you know, some of this just really kind of gets to how long do you think this patient's going to be on IV fluids? And the reality is if this is a short-term need, you probably don't need to get too fancy with the composition of fluids. Really, you just want to kind of keep them in a good place and do it as safely as possible and stop your therapy as quickly as you can. Now, in a patient that's going to have prolonged NPO and they're going to be on IV fluids for a period of time, I think glucose is something really to think about in terms of avoiding a catabolic state. So when you think about a patient who's NPO, they certainly need dextrose in order to keep them away from being catabolic. Um, D5 is not a lot of dextrose, and it's certainly not enough to provide your daily glucose needs or to prevent you from tr truly flipping over into a catabolic state. So in patients that have been NPO or are going to be on IV fluids for more than a couple of days, it's important to think about higher GIRs or higher glucose infusions or more kind of parenteral nutrition as well. Um, but in short-term patients who are going to be IV fluids for a period of time before you reintroduce feeds, D5 or even in smaller patients, D10 might be reasonable to provide about 20 to 25% of their estimated caloric needs. And just to give some super practical pieces for our listeners. So when we take away from this talk, we'll be like, all right, I'm going to do these things. Um, so, you know, could you give us, is it easy to give us like an hour or a number of days to say, hey, this is how long I would do this before I need to put this in the fluids? Like, is it, are you saying as a nephrologist, like if you're not on an IV fluids for all of six hours, it's fine, but anything past 36 hours we should be worried about? I'm just curious if we can get something that I can take to the bank. <laughs> So it depends a little bit on the age of the child as well. So in smaller kids, you're not going to want to have them off of fluids with glucose for probably more than six to eight hours. Um, so especially in babies, you're certainly not going to want to have them off of dextrose containing fluids for a period of time. Now in older teenagers, we're talking a day, maybe even 36 hours, where it's completely reasonable just to have them on LR without any dextrose or half normal saline without any dextrose. Um, but, you know, a patient that's going to be NPO for a period of several days, you're going to want to be adding dextrose to the fluids. And then my usual kind of point where I start thinking about, do I need to think about 
added nutrition. So enteral or parenteral nutrition is about three days. Um, so, you know, four to six hours, you need to think about glucose in small kids, 24 hours in older kids, and then three days you need to think about better caloric support for patients who are on NPO. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. And so as far as other things we can add, the next one on the list of the menu is is potassium or I think the ED, sometimes they would call it the banana bag because bananas have potassium. Who should we be considering for potassium and aren't we terrified that we're going to give them hyperkalemia? So you should always be a little terrified because- I was say, I'm terrified. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's always better to be thinking about the possible complications of something you're prescribing than not to consider it at all. And so because prescribing fluids are just like everything else we do in the hospital, you have to think about your upside and you have to think about the risks as well. Um, so, you know, yes, you should think about it. Um, but hypokalemia is also not good for someone who's critically ill, especially for this patient who has ongoing vomiting. They're probably hypokalemic and that might be one of the reasons that they're not feeling well. So I think about adding potassium to fluids in a patient that I know has moderate to good renal function um, and normal to low potassium. So I won't add potassium or I wouldn't recommend adding potassium to fluids without basic labs. Um, and it's certainly something that if you have a patient who is on potassium-containing fluids, it's going to be something that you want to monitor with, I would say, at least daily labs. And you mentioned, um, you know, mild to moderate uh, or, or at least good to, to moderate kidney function. Again, just to be a little bit practical, what do you think of a GFR that is bad kidney function or the, or the line that we should be like, this is not good and we should be paying more attention? So any patient with a baseline kidney function or abnormality in their kidney function. So any patient with CKD, um, you should be thinking about, do you truly want to add any potassium to their fluids without speaking to a nephrologist? But in a patient who, um, you know, has a normal GFR, so a GFR north of 60, it's very reasonable to add potassium to fluids um, as long as you have a plan to monitor. Remember, we're talking about 20 milliequivalents of fluid per liter. So patients are actually truly not getting that much potassium over a period of hours. It seems like a big number, um, but when you think about it in terms of their hourly ongoing fluid requirement, it's not a huge amount. So as long as you have a plan to monitor and follow it up, um, then I think it's very reasonable to include potassium in your fluids. One thing I, that you had mentioned too that I, I think has come up a lot for me on inpatient is that if you get a BMP at the beginning and the creatinine is elevated, the calculated GFR that pops up in that BMP is, is not their baseline GFR. They are not chronic kidney disease. So for those patients that have an elevated creatinine, presumably because of this pre-renal azotemia, we do not need to worry as much about consequences of hyperkalemia as we resuscitate them. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the important point to remember about that calculated GFR is that, remember, that's based on kind of just a snapshot in time. And so the analogy I tend to use that I think I used last time I was talking to you guys as well is that, um, you know, a creatinine is just really a snapshot in time. And so if you were to take a picture, if I were to throw a ball up in the air and you were to take a picture of that ball, you wouldn't know whether it was on its way up at the top of its peak or on its way back down. And it's the same exact thing when we think about a creatinine. 
So the patient that you just talked about who has an elevated creatinine, who's now gotten volume resuscitated, their creatinine is probably better. And you can tell that clinically because their vital signs are probably better. My bet is that they started peeing um, and they probably are now normalized their creatinine in the 12 to 24 hours since you checked that BNP. Now, being the type A nephrologist that I am, I probably would recheck a BNP to make sure it's normalized, um, but that's just me. Um, but I think that in a patient where you really think that this is in the setting of volume depletion, pre-renal azotemia, I would give that patient potassium um, as long as they are peeing and you otherwise are monitoring their fluid balance. I was just say maybe following up on that of checking the, the creatinine and also wanting to monitor the potassium. When we have a patient who is on maintenance fluids, um, should we be regularly checking BMPs? Are there indications for when we should be doing a follow-up BMP? Or are there is there any frequency that you think – I mean, do, does, a, does a maintenance fluid with potassium need daily BMPs? Or how often should we be checking these electrolytes? So I would say in a sick patient who is on a therapy that might cause either dysnatremias or hyperkalemia or other electrolyte woes, um, I would recommend at least checking daily BNPs. Um, and that's because you really want to be checking the efficacy of your therapy and you want to be changing your therapy if you needed to. So we talked about how these patients all have risks of increased ADH. If you start to see a serum sodium going down, 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 you might change your therapy. If you start to see the serum potassium start going up, 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 or the creatinine go up, 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 you're going to change your therapy as well. So I do think in addition to kind of monitoring a patient, their kind of clinical response, their vital sign changes daily weights and ins and outs, you're also going to want to be getting BNPs to see where you're going in terms of your electrolytes. And is 20 mil equivalents the uh, the answer for potassium and anything else? Should that be, um, should that be given just as a PO supplement? So you certainly can. I don't know if you've ever tried um, oral potassium supplementation, um, especially in a patient with gastroenteritis. It, it may not go super well. Um, so I think that giving you know 20 milliequivalents per liter in IV fluids is a very reasonable way to approach this. But yes, using the gut um, over IV fluids, especially when it comes to potassium, is probably a safer alternative as well. And then we've also talked about LR being a possible maintenance, and we also talked about the risk and how scared we are about adding potassium to LR, which we shouldn't be at all. But I just want to confirm with you that that could be okay. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I really like using fluids off the shelf. So I think using potassiums that are prescribed and delivered as mixed is a safer way than adding things to bags. And so in my practice, I will prescribe things that um, I don't have to do additives. Um, and so I often will reach for LR if I want to give potassium to a patient as opposed to adding potassium to a bag of half normal saline. One of the things we talk about of being aware for these dis... Um Natremius, especially as people that have chronic kidney disease or have abnormal renal function. And so in this case, isotonic is four years old, but in your neck of the woods, when especially the kiddos are um, neonatal or smaller, less than that one month to 18 year range that you mentioned for the guidelines, how does that affect our management? If, if ice were less than 28 days old, if he's a two week old newborn, 
Does that change our fluid selection? And maybe can you talk about why? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll point out that the guidelines say and recommend normal saline pretty much all the way down to even those very, very small babies. Um, I would argue that their physiology is quite different and their renal concentrating abilities are quite different as well. And so babies have the ability to excrete, or they have less ability to excrete sodium load and they also have less concentration ability. And so when we start getting in these smaller kiddos, they actually can tolerate a much lower sodium content in their fluids more successfully. And so in kids who are young, I usually will use half normal saline. Um, in the neonates, you'll see them start using quarter. I don't have a lot of comfort with quarter normal saline and so tend to stick with half normal saline even for the smallest of babies. Um, but if you're practicing in a neonatal ICU, you'll start seeing people reach for those lower tonicity fluids because of babies' concentrating abilities in their kidneys. And then why do some people put 10 milliequivalents of potassium in the babies? Because we know it's per liter, so they're obviously going to get less total because of their size. So, um, so why do people do that? Because they're scared of potassium. This is a great question. So um, it gets back a little bit to um, just some of what we know about uh, neonatal renal physiology. So neonates mature the distal part of their tubule slowly. And so their sodium-potassium transporters um, are really immature. And so they have a decreased ability to secrete potassium. And so that's why if you look at your, you know, handbooks in terms of normal potassiums, the potassium that is kind of considered normal in Harriet Lane is actually much higher in babies. Um, and so that's because they have immature distal tubular function and they hold on to potassium a little bit better. So that is, I think, historically why we give less potassium to babies, um, because we know they're able to get rid of it a little bit less effectively than older kids. And do you think that, you know, and this is a good question for, you know, across the board for these, like, do you think it's just us being scared or do we have evidence for some of these things? And it's okay for us being scared right now. You know, they'll probably have evidence coming out in the future. I think we, you know, we have evidence that baby kidneys are not as good at excreting potassium. Um, so they certainly can get themselves into trouble a little bit quicker. We also know that babies have intrinsically lower GFRs. And so they just have worse kidney function. Um, and so if you're going to err in terms of the amount of anything you give to a baby, you always want to err on the lower side because you just do not know what their kidney function is going to do. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any podcast player. You can also email us anytime at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our showrunner for this episode and all of our episodes, Dr. Sam Mazur, and to our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, on Facebook. Thanks for joining tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Sam Mazur. And this has been Chris that you met you. Thank you. Good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. 
Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.